Greetings, and welcome to Beatles Stuffology, where two old friends sit about and talk BS, Beatles stuff, with exactly as much authority as you would expect from two people who are apparently allergic to any kind of research. In other words, it's another episode. I am JG McCrory, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Hello, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. As you've slightly varied the opening, I thought I'd vary my response slightly too. I appreciate that. It's always good to keep <laughs> things slightly fresh. Um, we're back and we are discussing the next track on With The Beatles. So that means this week we are going to be talking about Till There Was You. So, um, yeah, without without further preamble, shall we um, dive into it? What, what do you think of it? Well, I suspect this is one of those episodes where we're probably not going to be talking about the song very much because what is there to say? Um, not a vast amount this time, I, I would have to say. It's uh, it's a curious piece. It's very chintzy. It's very um, sort of schmaltzy. And it's well-performed within a sort of list of parameters, I suppose. You know, um, McCartney sings it very well. Uh, George Harrison's got a really, really good guitar solo. He knocks that out of the park. Um, very casually, in a way that isn't necessarily his kind of modus operandi at this point in the band, but he, he kind of really does a good job on it. Mm. Um, Ringo's bongos playing isn't the best thing in the world I've ever heard, but, you know, it's, 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 it's very competent. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a um, um, potentially inaccurate but you know, interesting piece of trivia. Um, you know, it was played quite a lot. They, they did play it apparently... It, it, Bear in mind, this is going from setlist.fm, um, reliability of which, you know, user um, inputted, um, you know, um, information. So could be all over the place. But, you know, it sounds appropriate in February 62 that it was first played at the Oasis Club. It sounds very, very appropriate. Um, <laughs> and most recently played in August 64 at a convention, a convention center called Convention Center in Las Vegas. And you know what? It kind of puts me in mind of um, of of Elvis, you know that that sort of um, Las Vegas period Elvis and the kind of song that he might have sung. Wouldn't surprise me if he did, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, it's it's fine. It's did you use the word chintzy? Yes. Yeah, and but it's clearly one that they they liked playing, which is is really odd. Whether that's because it changes the uh, the tempo in the set. Um, whether it's something that that gives McCartney an opportunity to to sing something on his own while Lennon takes a bit of a break. Remember, they played this um, on some really big occasions as well, didn't they? Played it on the Ed Sullivan Show, the Royal Variety Performance, two of the most famous performances in Beatles history. And they played it. Frankly, it wouldn't surprise me if during rehearsals they thought about playing it on the the rooftop at Abbey Road. They seem to like it so much. I think this is one of the songs that I mean, we've mentioned this a few times in the podcast before. So sorry if this is uh, slightly repetitious, but I think this is definitely one of the songs which is included in the set to provide variety. It's definitely there to appeal to an audience who aren't necessarily going to be into kind of the more rock and roll music or whatever. This is definitely what Lennon would call Paul's granny shit. And, you know, that's fair enough. That's exactly what it is. But I think there's definitely a sense that this is here for that kind of thing. So if it's being played at the Royal Variety performance or something, it's it's something which is going to very directly appeal to that kind of older audience who aren't going to be kind of invested in the more sort of teenage end of the music spectrum. It's definitely one 
which I think allows them to show off their versatility. I think that goes without saying. But it's also one which I think kind of shows off their musical competence as well. Everything, everything is, I, I used the word competent before, kind of damning with faint praise. But it is very competent. McCartney's voice is really good on the recorded version. And there's the, I think there's a, it's a Live at the BBC version as well, or anthology. Um, and it's basically pretty much as is on the album, which is pretty impressive. I mean, again, like I mentioned George Harrison's guitar solo, but that's not an easy thing to just kind of knock out. And, and the live recordings of this are pretty much identical to to the the recorded version so there's not a great sense in which they are uh using the studio to up their kind of technical quotient they can do this and they can do it live and they can do it pretty much without having yeah. to stop and think about it and i mean yeah competent is is damning with frame praise but it, it's not you know it's not without its virtue yeah no that's fine i mean played live more than please please me uh wow. for example um you know, and Love Me Do as well, just for some sort of comparable uh, statistics. So, we, I mean, which would seem to, to back that point of view up. And it is only McCartney in the band who would have sung this song as well. I mean, it's not it's not a Ringo song. It's not as, <laughs> as juvenile or as, you know, um, like, you know, something like Octopus's Garden or Yellow Submarine, but neither is it is it Boy's. Um, you know, so it does kind of fit in with um, with what he might sing. Can't imagine George um, with his sort of nasally vocal um, managing it, and Lennon wouldn't have touched it with a barge pole, but would have been quite happy to have sat back while while McCartney does it. Um, but then there's an interesting point because, of course, you know, you you sort of think of, of the context of, of these songs quite a lot, and we do talk a lot about uh, various contexts, of course. We're at a period where the Rolling Stones are starting to develop their career. And of course, they have this reputation as being, you know, the nasty ones, as it were, the, the ones who are perhaps a little bit with a little bit more street cred. But then, you know, and, and songs like this are often used um, as evidence of, of why the Beatles were the nice boys and when I'm 64 and obli dee obli da and so on and so forth. And yet it's what, two years since they last played at Hamburg? And Hamburg was the sex and drugs and rock and roll, um, possibly more than than any other band in in history in such a condensed period of time. So it's all about the versatility and it's all about, uh, look, we can do this. We can do, you know, twist and shout and we can do till there was you. Now, admittedly, even when they're doing twist and shout, they're doing it, of course, in their suits and with a little bow afterwards. So, you know, they are very conscious of the fact that they are a commercial entity and it's about being as successful and as big in a short space of time as possible so you know although i'm not a particular fan of till there was you and i've never um sat through a performance of the music man i'm unlikely to sit through a performance of the music man the musical that it comes from there's clearly something in it that appeals to them and who am i to doubt the judgment of the the group that apparently they called the fab four well, I mean, we're here to doubt the dust. The point of this podcast is <laughs> we're we're doubting all the way. But I do think it's um, I do think it's an interesting one in terms of um, in terms of the way that it's performed. For some reason, every time I came to think of this when I was listening to it uh, prior to recording this episode, um, every time I thought, "Oh, I must remember to sit down and listen to um, till there was you." 
I always ended up with the melody of and I love her in the back of my head and yeah. it made me think that maybe yeah. and I love her is just a much better version of this song because I think in honesty I'm not really convinced that this is a very good song it's being covered about 17 bajillion times it it there's just so many cover versions of this song um not all of which postdate the beatles so it's not like it's one that can necessarily be laid at their feet the the, the musical i think is six, uh, 1957 or something like that i think uh, music man was originally yeah. Yeah. released but there's there's a couple of cover versions uh, which exists prior to this one. Um, if, if Wikipedia is to be believed, it's uh, Peggy Lee's version that, that um, Paul McCartney was aware of. But it's it's out there, and people are covering it long long before you know the Beatles get get their hands on it. It would be impossible to assume that uh, the fact that they've covered it hasn't added to the song's popularity, of course. But it was it was still out there, and yet for all the cover versions that are out there none of them are really that great and like you know there's some big artists who have who have covered it obviously you know mentioned peggy lee that goes without saying but you know like ray charles couldn't find that much in it it's stylistically yeah. it's very different from the beatles version as as you would expect but it's kind of it, it it's it's trying to spin hay into gold and and like if ray charles can't manage it i'm bloody sure that rod stewart isn't going to manage it at any point in his career uh, and you know it's just like there's so many versions out there and they're all either basically the same kind of you know chints that the Beatles have got or they try and stretch the song like Red Charles's version so far out of shape that it's barely recognizable as the same song and I just like after about five or six different versions it becomes very difficult to want to listen to any more of them because they're all basically coming up against the same limitation and I think that limitation is that ultimately it's just not that great a song. Oh, it would be interesting. Oh, no, it wouldn't be interesting. I take that back completely. I suppose if we were to... Um, how did you change the introduction to about two people who basically can't be asked to do the research they really ought to be doing? Yeah. I mean, I suppose technically what we really ought to have done is to um, at least read through the plot of The Music Man to then work out where the song comes and where it fits in and therefore possibly whether or not contextually whether it is um, a significant song in that respect. You know, it's a little unfair sometimes to pull a song out of a musical if it's meant to, to conform to, to part of the narrative. I know, you know, you can do it. There are lots of sort of standalones. Um, but of course, what we're doing is we're thinking about it in relation to perhaps how they would have used it in their live set, but then also how it fits into the, uh, the running order of this particular album towards the end of, of side one between Little Child and Please Mr. Postman, both of which are pretty up-tempo, um, rocking songs in their own way. So there is that change of pace. There is that sense that they are throwing in something even now, just to kind of have that little bit of variety. Now, whether or not they needed it um, is a is another thing entirely. You know, it's just one of those, like when we get on onto the second side, we'll probably, you know, Devil in a Heart as well is another song that feels out of place with some of the songs around it and, you know, feels out of place in, in the Beatles canon as well, really. Um, so, you know, there, there will be more of this to come, more of this kind of thing, as it were. Um, so, I don't know, it, it's, it's just, I think you, you have to kind of look at it and think, is McCartney still doing that kind of thing? Perhaps in his in his live set, I mean, he is still throwing in lots of variation. You know, he's 
currently sort of doing his his world tour. Um, you know, some of the 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 gigs in America have been like three hour monstrous affairs playing, you know, 40 songs and, and having a whale of time doing it. There's got to be variation in that. And, you know, he is playing quite a wide mix of, of songs. So it's it's just something of the, the natural performer in him. And it's, it's just sort of something of a miracle that, that he continued to do that. He continued to write, uh, I'm mean, sort of looking again at the track listing of, um, say, um, Tug of War the other day, which is you know, a McCartney album from the early 80s that I got a lot of affection for. And alongside things like Here Today and Wonderlust, which, you know, are really wonderfully crafted songs, you, of course, get a few slightly weirder things. Um, and I'm going to throw in that... Um, um, is Ballroom Dancing on that album? Ballroom Dancing is on that yeah, album, yeah, yeah, it sure is. Yeah, which is another one of those those oddities. But there's there's actually you know, Take It Away is is it, it just again it's you you put here today against Take It Away, and you just think you know good on you for for actually being brave enough just to go you know what I want to show off all of the skills that I've got so here we go and you know till there was you is that linked to the fact that it was probably one of those songs that he learned in the McCartney household. So, you know, good luck to him, basically, is what I'm trying to say. I don't particularly like it, but it's not there for me. No, well, that's that's also true as well. And, you know, one thing we can say about, you know, the first side of this album is that it does have that variety to try and keep people coming back. And, you know, the other thing to bear in mind, I suppose, at this point, which is, you know, uh, 63, 64, albums are bloody expensive and Mm -hmm. so investing in an album you really had to encourage people to have that you know desire to buy that product you know you could pick up a single for not too much that was all right that was that was probably within most uh, teenagers purview but actually investing in an album and and having that kind of financial outlay for for a piece of wax that's that's not nothing and so if you want to encourage people to to put their hands in their pockets it might well be that you throw in a couple of tracks that maybe maybe you know somebody's parents might like because maybe that would encourage them to to help you buy it or or whatever but you know but if at the very least if if it's teenagers who are going out and buying the album putting that extra bit of variety in gives the encouragement for people to go out and and spend their kind of hard won cash on it and i don't want to do a a whole kind of oh back in the day kind of routine but you know it was a significant factor you know buying an album was was expensive you couldn't go to the library to borrow it you couldn't you know obviously um you know if one person got it you couldn't go out and and you know tape it off a friend or whatever at this point you know that wasn't practically accessible technology so you had to you had to really really want something uh to 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 have that kind of financial outlay and for all that i think particularly say one of this album just just fades away to pretty much nothing with the last with the last two songs that we've discussed don't bother me and little child and then with this you know again like you said we're not necessarily the target audience for that and the song does have a function to play within the context of the album we'll probably talk about this more when we do the overall album uh, sort of coverage but you know it, it, it is bearing it, it is worth bearing that in mind and and the live performance of it, the constant live performance of it, also gives that familiarity that people pick up the album and go, oh yeah, well, I saw them do that on the TV the other night, or I saw them do that on, on you know, the radio, I heard them listen, you know, 
that gives the album another hook that encourages people to go out and, and buy the album and spend the money obviously that benefits the band but it's also something that emi would be very conscious of as well they can make money out of this well then then you, you sort of potentially get into the um the conversation about um yeah, because there's quite a few songs on here which would have appeared on uh, live performances you know please mr postman roll over beethoven for example um you know more so than than some of the the originals um you know then you get into the um the physical memento of a live experience you could have that that sort of as a conversation um and the fact that they are basically saying here you go here's here's a reminder of of what we are like as a live band um you also get into the potentially the conversation about the fact that we're talking about 1963 for goodness sake and yeah, rock and roll is still an evolving art form and there is no template for what should go on um, a successful album. And, you know, show tunes were popular. We know from previous conversations that we've had that some of the um, the biggest selling albums of the, um, the late 50s, early to mid 60s were soundtrack albums. Um, so why not? Why not have something from from a musical? It's it's clearly popular, um, and who's to know how um, fourteen um, rock and roll tracks, you know, uh, would have actually sounded to the audience at that time? So the variety just kind of makes sense, you know. It, it's it's difficult to judge it from twenty twenty two eyes in ears ears probably more than the eyes. I think that's safe to say, um, you know, in terms of what we might expect to hear, um, you know, people would be like, yeah, people might have one or two albums in their collection. That's it. Their parents might have some soundtracks, maybe a classical, maybe a, I don't know, insert name of person with their orchestra here. Um, they are creating the template. I think it's almost as, as simple as that. You know, they, they're making the rules that other people can then decide to follow or to, to adjust. And, and chances are that outside, say, the Ramones, you're probably not going to find that many albums that are all one particular tempo, one particular type of song. Because let's face it, Ramones fans, that's true. I don't think Ramon's fans would argue that point, would they? Um, I mean, the other thing about this, like, like you know, obviously you're correct in saying that. And, and once kind of, once the Stones kind of get their first couple of albums out of the way, once the Kinks get their first kind of album out of the way, you know, that kind of template is is there. But there is, I mentioned uh, sort of the, the uh, competence of the song. I think it's just worth um, mentioning that generally speaking, when, when I've talked about chords and and the way that songs are constructed it, it's usually in the context of saying something like well you know like there's only like five chords in this so there's only six chords it's amazing how well there are 32 chords in this song it's okay. absolutely insane how it's a it's one of those things like you know you can just just by looking at that you can tell the immediate difference between you know, a song which has been specifically crafted for something like a musical, a professional songwriter, Tin Pan Alley, that neck of the woods. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. these guys who stand up on stage and, and kind of knock it out. And yeah. when they're writing their own songs, they aren't writing songs which have that degree of complexity. They will, but yeah. they're certainly not doing it in 1963, 1964. And that, again, it's one of the things that I suppose... Um, yeah, 
when I use the word competence, but there is a sort of breezy effortlessness to this that kind of belies just how complex the, all that stuff is. Like a lot of them are kind of like diminished versions or, or seventh versions as well as the major chords or whatever. But even so, that's a, it's a lot to get in and it sounds kind of breezy and effortless. And that's one of McCartney's great skills is taking something which is actually really difficult and just making it seem incredibly kind of just tossed off or just like there's no effort involved in it at all i think it's one of the reasons he i i I can't possibly refer to him as being underrated in any way but i think it's one of the reasons that he's maybe underestimated in some way because he has he has that skill and this song is a perfect example of that i i don't think it's a particularly great song not by any stretch of the imagination but the sheer ability to be able to do that is certainly worth drawing attention to okay so i've just had one of those moments where I've just remembered something. And I think you'll like okay. this one. Okay. I've been watching quite a few um, interviews uh, with and performances by Neil Innes recently. Um, and, and of course... I'm already it, smiling. Yeah, and I, absolutely. Absolutely. Just wonderful things. Or, yeah, anyway. Um, and, of course, in, in the Ruttles film, um, alongside yeah, at the Royal Variety performance, which, of course, you know, one of the celebrated performances of this song is Royal Variety Performance. Um, we've got With a Girl Like You, which obviously sung up towards the, um, um, you know, the Royal Box. So, and actually, With a Girl Like You is a much better song. I mean, there are several, um, <laughs> you know, ones like that. And, and the one that I'll come back to much, much later in this series is Let's Be Natural, which is just oh, God, one yeah. of the most beautiful songs ever written by anyone. Uh, amazing that it was written by a parody uh, band. But With a Girl Like You fits really, really nicely um, with Till There Was You. Um, wonderful, wonderful song. Um, and that's the one I'd much rather listen to. Yep, I'm definitely not going to argue with that. I mean, I, I, I love With a Girl Like You, obviously. I mean, I love literally everything about the Ruttles. That goes, yeah. <laughs> goes without saying. Um, I, I, this is slightly off topic, I know. And I'm, I know we'll talk about the Ruttles again and again as we go through this series. But I just want to also re-emphasise that what a pleasure it is to listen to Neil Innes talk. Just like yeah. hearing him being interviewed and, and just hearing his... He's incredibly modest, just the most beautiful soul in the world. He's yeah. just the most gorgeous man. And uh, the world is, is so much less for, for not having him in it anymore. But but it's it's wonderful that there are so many interviews with him, so many recordings. And, and of course, it's just it's just a, a blast to listen to him. Yeah. He's, he's fabulous and wonderful. And uh, With a Girl Like You is kind of one of those examples of... Um, more or less what I was just talking about, actually. It kind of, it seems so effortless to write a parody like that, but it's unbelievably difficult to do it and for it to not just sound like corny or whatever. And, you know, like Weird Al can do it as well. There's plenty of other people out there. It's not something which is completely unique to to Neil Innes, but he has such a precision about the way that he does it. There's so much attention to detail. There's so much genuine class involved in the way that he does it yeah but it's so effortless it just comes across as having taken no time no energy at all and it's just it's glorious when you realize just how much has gone into it i i mean i I do feel obliged to point out that that um wikipedia would like me to believe that uh with a girl like you is a parody of if i fell it may well be but the fact that it's the kind of song that it is and it's in the royal variety performance i'm sorry it, yeah, it suggests it, otherwise. It, it's got to have links with with this one, um, and I'd much rather spend half an hour talking 
um, talking about with a girl like you, uh, to be honest. Although that would then, of course, encompass the conversation about um, Eric Idle's pathetic attempts to mime playing the bass throughout that film. Oh yeah, he's he's not a great mime artist. It's <laughs> fair to say. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's. I think when it comes to those songs as well, saying it's like a parody of one thing is is yeah. probably fairly limited. Like "Piggy in the Middle" is obviously "I Am the Walrus." That goes without saying. But like things like um, "With a Girl Like You," like that's more kind of a genre parody than necessarily yeah. something which can be narrowed down to a yeah. specific track. So if I felt, yeah, absolutely. But it, you, you're right. Like the whole performance. At the, at the Royal Variety, then of course it's going to mirror this as well. So, but again, that's that's kind of the skill of Neil Innes that he can he can write a song and it, it can have like you know five or six different songs that you could go oh well no no it's a parody of that one or it's a parody of this one that's yeah that's the skill of the man yeah yeah absolutely God bless you Neil God bless you um, yeah I'd be interested the other thing I've been doing a lot of and and again it's something that will crop up further down the line. Um, I've been rewatching quite a lot of the uh, the analogs live performances because I'm I'm sort of slightly obsessed with just how good they are as a, as a, a live band. Um, I've started to see a few more crop up of some of the earlier, you know, more simple, more straightforward songs. I, I mean, I would be very interested to see, you know, whether or not they would be able to expand um, their full range. And um, you know, with some slight sadness, I saw they are doing a gig um, in the UK at some point, but it's something like a Monday night about 200 miles away from where I live um, and very, very expensive to get to. But, you know, I think it would be fantastic to see a band like that. It's not a um, um, not a tribute band, but a band who seeks to mimic the sound of the Beatles accurately. Um, how they go about the full range of songs because they're brilliant at the later stuff, the more complicated stuff. But to hear them do some of the um, um, the simple stuff. And by the way, last thing on this promise: um, Did you know that there are Ruttles tribute bands? Oh, that's glorious! That's 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 that in and of itself just makes me incredibly happy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. absolutely. Yeah, keep calm and Barry warm. Oh God, yeah, yeah. love them, <laughs> love them to death. Um, yeah, it's it's funny because. It, like talking about, in a vague attempt to drag us back to what we're nominally discussing, um, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, cover versions, which obviously this is, the Music Man itself is is kind of. We were discussing this before we started recording, and I said it's kind of a forgotten musical, and you pointed out, well, but it's on Broadway with Hugh Jackman. So okay, forgotten in twenty twenty, <laughs> in twenty twenty, yeah. um, that that year, which was known for all those live performances, yeah. Um, so forgotten is perhaps not quite the right word. Um, and given that this song has been covered so many times, obviously this one part of it manages to carry on. But it's also musical, which is very much kind of, oh, I was going to say forgotten again. It, it, it's nobody's first call. If somebody says, like, oh, name, name a couple of musicals. Maybe they'll say Les Miserables. Maybe they'll say Phantom or Oklahoma or South Pacific or something. Nobody says, oh, The Music Man. It, it's very much, you know, kind of down the list yeah. of um, potential sort of sources. Yeah. And yet this one song persists from it in the literally hundreds of cover versions which exist on Spotify. This is the one song which kind of constantly comes up. And it's kind of interesting to see that cover version just be so popular when everything else about that music is kind of 
that musical rather is kind of faded away to you know at at best kind of background noise maybe there'll be a revival or something or one you know whatever but it's it's never going to be like a top tier kind of thing and it's just it's just kind of interesting to absorb how that kind of cultural ephemera that sort of cultural flotsam manages to kind of bounce its way through the ages when when you know the source material is very much sort of faded away to to well not nothing but very much faded away into the background at least i I think the important thing from from my point of view is that it's not too long now into maybe a year 18 months um until you get to the point where instead of um covering songs like this they in particular paul um are writing their own versions and one heck of a lot better yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, If I Fell, uh, you know, which is unquestionably a better version of this song. Um, even even things like kind of I'll Follow the Sun, which I really like. Um, we'll yeah. talk about that, obviously, when we get to it. But I think, I think I'll Follow the Sun is a, a cracking little song. But again, I think you can very much see, you know, this kind of song as as that's antecedents you know there's there's definitely roots there stylistically in terms of the way that the guitar works you know there's there's plenty of examples of this kind of stuff throughout their career and having been you know very judgmental about this song as as is my want uh you know it, it it's you know i think it's fair to be judgmental in this song because we have so many examples of something similar being done just done much better i mean what would be interesting would be then to, if we could be bothered, to see if there are any um, performances where they were uh, doing... I mean, If I Fell was played quite a lot live by the Beatles. Um, I don't know whether or not I'll Follow the Sun was, but to see if they actually end up having performances where two or three of those sorts of songs ended up in them. I mean, I doubt it very much, bearing in mind that their live act was roughly 25 to 30 minutes, um, they probably wouldn't want to be varying the pace of it too much. But, you know, just to see what in, say, 64, 65, 66 exactly did make up um, those Beatles performances. Yeah, that would be very interesting, but it would involve research. Well, it involves browsing on the internet. Um, wow, well, that's that's adjacent to research. It is, yeah. Um, Bing it, everyone. Yeah, I haven't used Bing since about... Um, Ever. Never, but um, yeah, I'm I'm sure if you want to um, um, stick up for it, you go ahead. I I I I'm not feeling the urge right at this exact no. moment. No. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, I don't know about you, but um, you know, I I think we've managed to do quite well for a song where you briefly brought up the um, the variety in terms of of chords. Great. Fair enough. It's um, if you like, it's the um, with the Beatles, dig a pony. Um, if you want to go for for that comparison, uh, was that the one okay. that, that George George Harrison complained about the number of um, chord changes in? Uh, I don't know. Was it? Uh, well, we could just pretend that that uh, it is and go from there, which is fine. I mean, that works it, for me. Yeah, <laughs> no, it is. I'm, 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 yeah, I mean, it does have quite a lot of chord changes in, and he you know, complained about how difficult it was to play. And then, you know, ironically, I was listening to um, Wawa the other day, and Wawa actually sounds like it's just as difficult, if not more so. Yeah, I'll bet it is. Yeah. Huh. George, you hypocrite. <laughs> well, <that>. yeah, <laughs> he'll be wounded. Um, <laughs> yeah. Wounded, I tell you. Shall we Shall we give this a score then? Oh, it's a five. Come on, don't beat around the bush. <laughs> slightly generous. I was going to say four and a half, but okay, sure. All right, five. I, I, can, I can probably live with five. Yeah. If I say four and a half, you're going to ask me to justify the half point. I am, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, Ringo's Bongos take it down half a point. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's not as bad. I mean, you know, I always defend Ringo, but on this, on, on this occasion, I'm uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Star. It, it, it's not your finest. It's not your finest. Um, but then yeah, it's not meant I'll, to be. It, it's functional. Is that? Yeah. 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 Okay. Right, yeah. Right. Okay. Right, yeah. Four and a half. I'll give it yeah. four and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Why not 4.75, though? Because uh, that's just taking the piss. Yep. Okay, good. Four and yep. a half it is. Lovely. Okay. Well, we have something slightly novel for us in this episode, which means we've had an email from one of our listeners. Thank you, our listener. In this case, it is Patrick Connor who has emailed in with the following. Uh, he says, greetings. I've just finished listening to the It Won't Be Long episode and enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much. Uh, I wanted to weigh in with a few thoughts inspired by what you guys said. Uh, so, uh, point one, uh, you talked about how there were 27 takes and yet how odd this seems given that it's a straightforward song in terms of its structure and arrangement. That surprised me as well, and then something else you mentioned provided some insight. You talked about how this was never played live and also brought up the classic idea that while you have your whole life to get ready for your first album, you then need to scramble to make the second. Assuming that this wasn't a song that was left over from Please Please Me, such as Hold Me Tight, um, then they are still basically learning this song as they write and record it. I've written and recorded music as a hobby for 40 years, and I'm, I'm working on a song just to record it, as opposed to also rehearsing it a lot for a live show, then it takes me longer to get finished, and if I don't have the context of having been working on it for a while, which... Yes. Yeah. Um, point two was uh, I agree that this on should that, have been part of because there's three points. Um, if you you read the next two, I'll have forgotten the first one. Um, such as the oh yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Well, first and foremost, um, thank you very much for accusing us of, of providing insight. I I really do appreciate that. That's was, <laughs> was a most welcome um, um, piece of feedback. Um, yeah, you're right, and I suppose actually at this point I should own up to the fact that I have now watched. Um, the whole of the the Peter Jackson oeuvre, and and you can actually see how the songs you know develop in that as they yeah that's a fair point and and that that does provide um, a look at, at how the songs develop in the studio themselves and you know they're basically learning it so you know fair point um, I'm quite happy to admit that I've not sat in in a recording studio that I am just you know, like Joe Mug. Um, carping on from from the sidelines but um but yeah it, it, it it's interesting to, to to get that kind of feedback um and i'm assuming that this is a, an email that you've selected from the many that we've had so far uh yeah naturally obviously from the many from the from the uh, bulging bag of one email yes absolutely <laughs> Um, Patrick's second point uh, I agree that this should have been part of the live show it is such an infectious song like you said I could picture the bow after the vocal ending well you're Mr Bow but yeah I I entirely agree Yeah, I think this would be a fantastic song to play live but let's get on to the controversial one though Okay, okay. Point three. Uh, With regard to your ranking system, I've done a lot of Beatles ranking and read and listen to a lot of it as well. The Big Beatles Sort Out podcast has been really fun to listen to. While it's all in good fun and all that, I've come to realise that my problem with ranking systems is that they don't account for context. I can apply certain criteria and conclude that Strawberry Fields Forever is a 10 out of 10. Yet, I don't want to hear that song all the time. Sometimes I'd rather listen to It Won't Be Long, even though by many measures it's not as strong a song. Why? because of context. I have a playlist called Joyful Beatles, and that includes songs like It Won't Be Long, Eight Days a Week, She Loves You, and When I'm in a Certain Mood, those are the songs I want to hear. 
In that moment, those songs rank higher than Strawberry Fields, A Day in the Life, Something, or any other classically considered top Beatles songs. If anything, the rankings for me now come down to deciding what I want on my joyful Beatles list. Thank you, Girl, for example, did not make that playlist, although it is quite joyful. And the internal rankings of, with this type of song, what do I like best, has become more interesting to me. Again, having said that, have fun with your rankings and I will enjoy hearing them. Well, okay. Um, yes, I think there are many problems with uh, with ranking systems. Um, so I'm, I'm quite happy to agree with that. I also think that uh, something, although it is the most streamed Beatles song on Spotify, is hugely overrated. However... I'm firmly of the opinion, um, and this is sort of up there in terms of opinions with um, um, the multiverse. Okay, so please bear that in mind that every song is the best song ever for 15 minutes. At some point, contextually, someone somewhere will be thinking that whatever song is the best song ever. For me, at the moment, um, I think the best Beatles song, or certainly the one that I want to listen to the most, I don't know why, is Sexy Sadie. I'm listening to that a lot at the moment, and it's running through my head. It's a brilliant song. Give me another couple of weeks and I'll have moved on to something else. So, yeah, completely agree. Um, rankings are an, um, shall we say, an inefficient and inaccurate way of, of dealing with something that is is uh, primarily subjective. But they're also a little bit of fun. And allow me to rib you uh, every so often about your point fives. Yeah, well, I'm quite happy to be ribbed of point fives. I have no problem with you calling me out whatsoever. It's good to get pulled up with these things from time to time. You know, have somebody say, well, why? Yeah, that's that's absolutely fine. I, I, I really enjoy doing the rankings. I think it's terrific fun. Um, and that's all it is. It's just it's just good fun to have the opportunity to um, to balance things against each other. And, you know, it's not a science. It's not anything other than... Uh, you know, really an excuse to give us a reason to come round to talk about the song that we're supposed to be talking about when we get to an end of the episode. That's kind of its principal function. Uh, but it's also just, it's just, it's just fun. And, you know, if it makes you think about a song in a slightly different way, if it does push a different context onto you, I think that's fine as well. And, uh, you know, I think Patrick has a fair point that, you know, yeah, sometimes you want to listen to, you know, a sprawling psychedelic epic. And sometimes you want to listen to a, a toe-tapping little tune that just gets stuck in your head. And, um, you know, sometimes using a number to push those two things up against each other and see how they juxtapose is, is, uh, is good fun. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Strawberry Fields, 10 out of 10. Well, interesting. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. That'll be a discussion for another day. Yeah. Look forward to that one. There are some sacred cows sometimes that, that need to... Is that, is that the metaphor? Um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't work out in my brain whether it was sacred cows, sacred cows or golden geese. Um, but whichever way, there are received wisdoms. There you go. That'll do. That I think sometimes need to be challenged. Orthodoxy, if you will, that, that needs to be revised. I, for one, am very much looking forward to defending Mr. Moonlight. That's all I can <laughs> say. <laughs> <laughs> anyway um thanks uh thanks pat very much uh, appreciate your email and uh yeah uh we look forward to getting some more and discussing them as well okay fine then you can contact us by email we are beetlestuffology at gmail.com uh we're on twitter at beetles underscore ology and you can find more of my writing about tv movies music and a whole bunch of other stuff at www.jgmacquarie.scott 
please like, rate and review us on whatever podcatcher you're using so that more people can find the show. Next episode, it's going to be another cover version. So we are going to be talking about Please Mr. Postman. But until then, keep listening.